You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. In 1973, an extraordinary motion picture stunned our senses and uncovered our deepest fears in a way no film had ever done before. When it was over, we thought the terror had ended, but it had just begun. Morgan Creek and 20th Century Fox proudly present The Exorcist 3 Legion. Written and directed by William Peter Blatty, the creator of The Exorcist. Coming this summer. Hi everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Friends. My name is Carlos Perone. And today we are going to kind of revisit an old topic that we covered in the past. I'm going to talk about the book Legion, which is basically what developed into the movie The Exorcist 3. I talked about Exorcist 3 once before. We did a a commentary. So that was jam-packed with information about the film, the actual theatrical cut of the film. This time around, we're going to talk more about the book how the book got started, where it come from, how it developed, and how it then transitioned into the film. But the fact that the film that we saw in the past is not the original cut of the film. There is a director's cut that's been out for a while now that's been kind of reconstructed by people in order to get a better understanding of what the director, which is also the writer of the book, had in mind. And wow, talk about so many interesting little facts and you know how one thing leads to another and how much compromise the director had to do with the studio in order to get his film made which is a story in itself and also the novel itself you know how much it it also differs you know from the end product that we got to see you know in the movies so let's begin with legion Matu, Miranda. You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, A reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. All right, we're back once again with another book review and this one uh was a a little odd one 
in a way, it's kind of returning to an old subject. And um, the subject is the movie The Exorcist. But specifically, I picked up the book Legion, which is William Peter Blatty's sequel, really, to The Exorcist, to the book. Even though there was a sequel to the movie that everybody pretty much doesn't want to even deal with because apparently it was so bad. Just so you know, for those of you who are new to the show, we did a commentary about six years ago, believe it or not, of The Exorcist 3, the film. That's a great show. I remember that show. That was pretty good. I had two other guests with me and, uh, you know, we went scene by scene and we we talked a lot, uh, not only about the film itself, but the development of the film and how it came to be what it ended up being more or less but one of the crazy things about this film is that it was so chopped up and re-edited to make it look like what it ended up looking like that the original cut of the film eventually more or less to a certain extent came to be included in a special edition, collector's edition of The Exorcist 3 uh, by Shout Factory. Shout Factory, media company that kind of specializes in a way in really cult and weird horror films and giving them the, you know, the special treatment. Well, this is one of them. Through one of my many, you know, movie tie-in adaptations that I purchased, and I've done this for a while now, I'll go into eBay and start searching for all kinds of crazy books. And I just I just type in the words movie, tie-in, paperback. Any combination of those. And then I end up getting all these book versions of movies that are out there in the ether. And some of them that are interesting and, again, obscure, culty kind of films. Because sometimes you end up with adaptations that are based on the movie. Or sometimes completely backwards, uh, movies that are based on books. And that's when you really get some really, really good, interesting stuff, like The Exorcist and this one. Now, what's really odd about the development of Legion, Willem Peter Blatty's Legion, is that originally, from what I understand, after The Exorcist came out, obviously the studio wanted a sequel. And at the time, they weren't really ready to do a sequel. The, the, the writer of the book wasn't that interested but he started having conversations, I believe, with the director of the film to see if something at some point could be done. What came out of those conversations was a rough story or a rough script, if you will, of a possible plot. And they tried shopping that plot around for a while, and nothing much came of it. The director, William Friedkin, who had done the the original exorcist he became kind of uninterested at one point even john carpenter was pitched you know the possibility of doing it again he didn't take the bait and what william peter blatty ended up doing i guess as a result of not being able to sell or to convince anybody to do that particular movie is he turned it into a book and that is what we have here in legion legion the book is based on an original idea that he had for a possible sequel. Now, at the time, once again, the studio had gone forward with a sequel that everybody hated. Everybody absolutely hated. So, Blatty was very set on the idea of not having this movie be such a straight sequel in the manner where 
it's kind of like the same characters doing the same thing all over again, you know, that kind of thing. This was a different idea. This was a diff- this was him using some what you could you could consider minor characters and turn it into a mystery, a psychological thriller mystery who done it kind of script that is sprinkled sprinkled with somewhat of a supernatural bits and pieces. So, the book itself takes place after what we saw, you know, on The Exorcist. And the main character is Lieutenant Kinnaman. Now, if you guys remember, Kinnaman was played by Lee J. Cobb. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Cobb died after The Exorcist and wasn't around, to, you know, to do any of these future adaptations or sequels. And if you remember, uh, when I talked about The Exorcist book, how different it is and it feels and certain characters, they have such more to them, which is a, a typical thing when it comes to a, a book uh, that that is the original source and then it gets adapted to be a film. But this one was, remember, if you guys remember, was the character that had its own controversy around them because you saw, or at least I saw, and a lot of people saw it too, what could have been the beginnings of the character of Lieutenant Columbo. The way that that character was written, his mannerisms, his his way of going into these tangents that kind of seemed completely random, but he's trying to get somewhere specifically. The, again, it, it was the, the the origin, the little bits and pieces of, of, of what, what probably ended up being Columbo. That's a whole other story. But that is the character we're dealing with here. He is the lead in this particular story. And throughout the story... We, we still get a little bit of that kind of character. He's very knowledgeable. He talks about these very philosophical themes with his partners or with strangers or with friends. And he's, you know, he's, a, he's very concerned with morality and God and the existence of God versus the, you know, the scientific theories and stuff like that. And through this uh, story, we get, you know, a lot of that. So what's happening in this particular book is that all of a sudden, these murders are taking place. Very horrific murders. Very uh, religious themes around the murders. And the MO of the murder seems to be something that the police had already resolved many years before. A killer that they thought they had already killed, even though the body wasn't recovered. Dun, dun, dun. You know, that kind of thing. But all of a sudden, they're popping up again. And they're really, really horrific, horrific killings taking place. And... As the lieutenant investigates these killings, the connections start to get made that this could be somehow leading to what had happened way, way, way before with the, again, original plot of The Exorcist. What basically brings you to that conclusion, I would say maybe halfway through the story, is that he ends up investigating a hospital where possibly the type of anesthetic that was being used to subdue the victims could have been coming from. And in that hospital, you got all kinds of weird characters in there. You got a couple of doctors that are really strange individuals in the psychiatric ward. And then you have the members of the psychiatric ward, the residents, the patients, if you will, that are really, really, again, some deep, deep, sick people. Now, some of the main characters, which is what makes this a little very interesting and very different than the movie that we meet, are Dr. Temple, who's a psychiatrist, uh, who 
basically is, you know, a suspect for the viewer, for the reader. He is one of these possible suspects. And he is kind of like a jerk. He doesn't really seem to care much about the patients. He's kind of hitting on the women. And, you know, he's, 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 he's that type of a personality of a doctor. Then you have Dr. Amfortis. He's a guy that is having some kind of a problem, possibly psychological, ironically, because he's another psychiatrist, I believe, whose wife has died. And he's been in this kind of slump. And he's trying to figure out because he's seems to be able to be having these connections to possibly dead people through a radio that he hears apparently this is whole pseudoscience or supernatural science about being able to contact dead people or other worldly kind of beings through radio frequencies or something like that. It's really, really out there kind of stuff. And he also becomes another suspect in the mix because some people, you know, some witnesses say that, well, the the second guy that was killed, you know, uh, it's possible that somebody was wearing a special kind of windbreaker and then the wind, you know, this guy has a windbreaker and, you know, there's all through the book, you know, they they kind of start placing all these characters where they, you know, where, where, where they're suspects. The first person killed in the story is a young boy who is horribly mutilated. And we later find out that the connection of this young boy has to do with his mother, who was the person that that was translating the audio recordings in the first story or the first film, if you will, of Reagan talking backwards. That's she was supposed to be the professional that was helping in deciphering that. The second person that was killed in the story is a priest who happens to be the guy in charge who dispatches the, I, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was Father Karras or, or the Max von Sido, uh priest. He was the guy in charge. So he's the second guy they kill in this story. The third person they kill is Father Dyer. Now, Father Dyer is the confidant, the friend of Karras in the first film. Here in this story, he becomes kind of like the confidant to Kinnerman. So that is the one that that really gets to Kitterman, that really affects him so deeply because all of a sudden now he loses a second friend. Again, the matters of the killings are something else. They're like something out of Silence of the Lambs type of killings. Now, it's a little difficult to separate the movie and its different cuts from the book in my head. Again, one of the biggest things is that some of these doctors don't make it to the film. Uh, For example, Dr. Amfortas never makes it to the film. They kind of wrap the doctor character into Dr. Temple. So that's a different thing altogether. So in a way, it's really strange because Dr. Amfortas had the more heavily supernatural, if you will, role in terms of what he was going through during these murders. Well, anyway, because Kinderman is investigating in an insane asylum, basically, a psychiatric ward, he runs into or is drawn into a specific cell where they keep the really dangerous, crazy ones. And one particular patient, to him, looks exactly like Father Karras. And that begins in the story. This kind of a, you could kind of see it as a cat and mouse game of interacting with Karras and trying to get information out of him and trying to find out. And then you get the whole background of the Gemini killer and what his background was and what he was trying to achieve. And... There's a lot of going back and forth about is he Karis pretending to be the Gemini killer or is he the Gemini killer that was never caught 
pretending to be Karis, but it is pretty straight and certain that in the book, he doesn't just sound like Karis, he looks practically exactly like Karis. And as they investigate more and more, they start to find out that, well, Karis wasn't really killed at the end of the of the first film or the first story. He somehow, and again, spoiler alert, he somehow was possessed by the death of this killer. And somehow one kind of takes the body over the body of the other one. And that is also, in a way, what is happening in this story is that the Gemini killer, through the use of Karis's body, is able to hop over other potential victims so that they become the killer. So it's a hopping killer scenario, if you will, to the point where the Gemini killer at the end is getting really close to possibly killing Kinderman's family. And at the last second, everything kind of ends and stops. And it is surmised or it is explained that something happened where his father, which was the person who was the reason for the Gemini killer existing in the first place, the psychological damage that he had done on this particular child and his brother. You know, there's a whole story behind the brother too, which for whatever reason, the father finally died. It's by, and by the father dying, the Gemini killer also dies at the same time, I believe, at the insane asylum. And that is kind of like the conclusion of the book. It's a little anticlimactic. I mean, the, the big climax is basically you know, getting home before one of the patients who is possessed by the Gemini killer arrives at the home of Kinderman and might be ready to kill everybody there because they have this uh, special tool that you'll see in the movie, obviously, that can cut people in half. It's really disturbing, you know, imagery of what this thing can do. And he stops it. Everything kind of stops in that point because they get the call from the hospital that something's wrong with Karis, or they call him Sunshine, Mr. Sunshine or something, because he doesn't even have a name in the book. So by the time he gets there, it's over. He's dead. It's kind of like the curse is broken. So it's it's really a, a less supernatural, if you will. I mean, granted, you can't get away from the fact that there is this thing going on where people are kind of hopping from body to body to commit these murders. And you really, when you think about it and when you examine it, you got to kind of figure out all these different patients or maybe even some of these doctors might have been involved. Now, granted, some of them are a little bit of a red herring because they're, they're kind of pointing you in the different directions on purpose. And some of the things that are happening, especially with, the, with Amphrotas, is really, really high-level supernatural stuff. You know, him being able to communicate or listen to certain things through this, these radio things. It's really, really weird stuff. So the book was very, very good. I, I really enjoyed the book because it definitely didn't just recycle the first book or the first movie, to tell you the truth. So then I was like, you know what? I, I got to read. I got to watch the movie again because, you know, the movie, I remember it was really a good movie. It was really creepy. But I know that there was a, there was some background to this movie because there was some controversy about what happened, when and how and how, who shot what, and all this stuff. And the way the story goes is like this. Blatty makes the movie and he finishes the movie. Now, from the beginning, he did not have access to Jason Miller, the guy who played Karis in the first film. So he hired Brad Dorff to play Jason Miller, to play his character. Now, you also obviously don't have access to Cobb, he died. So he's got George C. Scott playing Cobb. So you have a lot of actors playing characters for the first time. 
because the actors either are no longer alive or are not available. So he shoots this whole movie, you know, top to bottom. And then when he presents it to the studio, Morgan Creek, they said, well, I don't think it's working. I don't think the ending works well. We want to do a test screening. So they do a test screening and apparently the numbers come back horribly. You know, they say, listen, people are reacting really bad to this. Um, you need to change the ending or the third act, more or less. You know, the, I would say it's more than just the ending. It's a big chunk. So the story that we just talked about, which doesn't exactly follow exactly in that manner, but more or less, you know, you got a, a murder taking place, a serial killer, and then you have this confrontation in the psych ward, and then between the cop and the and this person that looks a lot like somebody that you used to know that shouldn't be alive, resulting in some kind of climax at the end where everything gets resolved. Well, they resolve it <laughs> in a way, that original cut of the film, in, in a different manner. However, the studio says, no, we got to change that whole ending. So by changing that whole ending, what they end up doing is they add an exorcism. They, the studio was dead set on saying, well, you know, this is an exorcist sequel and people are going to feel cheated if they don't see an exorcism. So the director loses that fight and has to give in and say, all right, fine, let's, let's throw an exorcism at the end. He's compromising, you know, again, his integrity, his, his creative integrity. And, and he's the writer, too. So there's like, you know, he, he, just, he knows that if, if he doesn't go along with this, they're going to just take the movie away from him, hire another director to finish it, probably, or something like that, which, ironically, that's what we were just talking about on the previous show. And they also say, you know what else? We got to get Jason Miller here because... You know, he was one of the main characters in the first film. People want to see a main character come back. We got to get him in here. And he was like, well, I don't know. We couldn't get him the first time. How are we going to get him now? So they get him. And they basically forced the director to reshoot, initially, all of the scenes with that Brad Dorif did as Father Karras in the insane asylum, shooting with Jason Miller. However, the problem was that Jason Miller was having some serious health and probably based on some interviews I read, alcohol problems, and he could not deliver the type of performance or the type of volume of lines that were necessary from that particular script. And if you see the movie, Brad Dorif, I would say, does a, an Oscar-worthy performance. The energy that this guy has in those scenes are just incredible. And Jason Miller apparently couldn't do that. He could not perform that well. So the director, Blatty, compromised, succeeded in at least compromising with the studio and saying, listen, I know you guys want Jason Miller, but he can't perform. So why don't we do this? Why don't we take some scenes with Miller and some scenes with Dorif? So we can kind of have a back and forth of the character that is kind of possessed, if you will, who can kind of flip back and forth between these two personalities. And when he's the Gemini killer, we have Dorif doing it. And when he's Karis, we have Jason Miller doing it. And the studio kind of agreed to do that. And that's what ended up on the final film, the film that you know people saw in the movie theater. And it's pretty good. When you hadn't seen anything before, and when you hadn't read any of the stories of what happened and how this film got made, it's pretty good, the back and forth, if you will. Still... In my opinion, even back then, Dorif steals the picture because he is just such a fantastic actor. Even with somebody like George C. Scott, 
George C. Scott is overwhelming when he's doing other scenes with other people or by himself. But when Dorif is on, forget it. He owns the scene, period. No doubt about it. The other thing that they then added and had to edit into the story like the studio wanted was an exorcism. So they introduced the character of Father Mourning, who... As all of this is happening, he on his own gets like a feeling and a message to come help. And then he shows up, you know, in the middle of this confrontation between George C. Scott and, and, and the Gemini killer. The Father Morning shows up and starts to try to perform an exorcism. And he starts to get his ass handed to him, basically. He's kind of torn to shreds by Karis and you know, the demon that's inside of him or whatever. Big spectacle, special effects people flying gore all over the place. And then, the, you know, the movie ends with, for one quick final second, Karis's personality comes through and is able to tell Kinderman to shoot him quick, shoot him now. And he shoots him and kills Karis, thereby ending, you know, the confrontation and basically finishing up the film. So that's what we think, or at least at that moment, what the film was about and how the film concluded. Obviously, none of this is in the book. <laughs> there is no exorcism at the end. There really is no back and forth between two people. I mean, in the book, we're told that the guy looks just like Harris. There is no Brad Dourif-looking individual. Because again, you're, you're talking about the book. The book is its own entity. So now you fast forward, and like I mentioned before, this uh, Shout Factory company put out a couple of years ago the collector's edition and what's really neat about it is that not only do you have the original film all the original supplemental material interviews blah 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 but then you have a second disc and what they did on that second disc is they added to the best of their ability what is described as a director's cut and they piece together again <laughs> in some shape or form what the original cut of the film was before it got you know chopped up so in this particular cut of the film, they sprinkled some more footage here or there that we hadn't seen before, and they remove all the Jason Miller material and replace it with Brad Dourif material. And then at the end, there is no exorcism. The film ends in a similar manner to the book and the final cut of the film. Then you have a lot of supplementals having to do with all these different things that were happening and how this second cut came about. And there's actually, as you watch the film, you can also listen to a commentary, which is really not a commentary. It's more of an interview that somebody did with Blatty, where he's discussing the film. And you can kind of tell the man, the man passed a few years ago. And, and you can kind of tell that this interview was done probably close to, to his passing. He doesn't seem to have the energy or the the bravado that apparently he used to have. And, you know, he tells us a lot of stories and a lot of things, but you can kind of tell he really doesn't want to get too personally wound up about it because there's a lot of bad feelings still probably inside of him relating to the making of this film or at least the, the post-production of this film. But a lot of the weird things of the original cut of the film are a little better explained when you watch this director's cut. The other thing about it, when you watch this director's cut, and I recommend you do it, buy it, find it, copy it, rent it, you know, whatever manner, because something to keep in mind, and you're warned from the beginning, they were not able to acquire the original negatives. And there are certain shots that they just could not find, period. What they did find were VHS dailies that were used 
of the shots that were being taken. So while you're watching the director's cut, sometimes you cut from a very nice looking, you know, 2K transfer to what looks like to be a VHS pan and scan or not, not pan and scan, but, you know, three by four shots of sequences. And it's very noticeable. It's distracting, but the acting is so damn good because most of that involves Dureth. And the thing to keep in mind, once again, is that this was shot twice. Originally, like I said before, Dureth shot all those sequences. But then when they brought in Miller, they shot it again, but they used a different set. They actually redressed the set for that. And then when Miller didn't work, they said, oh, crap, we got to get Brad Dorf again. <laughs> because if we're going to meld these two sequences together... They need to match, and we already have that, and he can't, you know, Jason Miller can't do any more. So we got to get Dorif now on the new set to do it, and he ended up coming back and redoing it all over again in the new set. So it's just crazy how this thing ended up being put together. So, you know, you watch the different cut, the new cut, if you will. And in the beginning, which is something, again, that in the, uh, the, the final cut, you also notice that there's this sequence where something's happening in a church and the wind is blowing through the door and you see like these roses being blown in and like leaves. And that's when you get that shot of the, of the Christ. I think it's a statue. His eyes open up, you know, really creepy looking imagery. And you're trying to figure out what is this? Because they're, re they're also replaying the death of Karis from the first film. And, and you can't really make heads or tails of what the hell is all this about. And in the director's cut, I have a feeling that that entire opening sequence is a dream or a hallucination. Or it could be a memory, if you will. Because later in the story, you do hear the Gemini killer talking about how he has these dreams. Or how about, how about in these dreams where he, you know, he sees the priest falling down the stairs. So it's very possible that the beginning of that sequence... It is a dream that you're watching. You're watching his dream or or the moment. That's another possibility. That could be the moment where the body transferred from one to the other. The mind of the Gemini killer enters the mind of Father Karras. In that sequence, and I remember, I noticed this when I watched the original. I'm like, wait a minute. There's a Not only is there a little kid on the left, which ends up being the kid that gets killed in the beginning, but there's a what looks like a priest running from left to right, like across the street, as the camera is panning down the street. You're like, what the hell is that? And then a few seconds later, the kid appears again, and he's holding a red rose, and that same priest looks like he's running from one end to the other. And you're like, what could possibly that be? That makes just no sense. Why would there be somebody running back and forth? And then you kind of start to put the pieces together, and it's like, well, yeah, okay, this is a dream. This is a dream where they're projecting or they're kind of showing you in this dream what's going to happen in the future so, you know elements of what's happening in the future so that's pretty interesting too there's also a lot of what i guess you can call them comedic lines here there's a lot of comedic moments too there's a especially with kinderman he's the way that he thinks and the way that he's kind of like processing information he's a very interesting character again if you read the original script the original book uh, for The Exorcist, uh, it's it, there's a lot of Columbo. The Columbo is all over that character, or the other way around. That character is 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 basically the beginnings of Columbo. But there's another father in this, Father Riley, who's played by Lee Richardson. And at some point, another uh, Father Dreyer asks him, you know, what's your favorite movie? And he goes, The Fly, which is a funny line, but it's even funnier because he starred in The Fly too, so he could be making a reference to an internal, you know, wink wink to the audience, or at least to genre people that. He's kind of making fun of his own movie. 
Now, one of the things I also noticed, and I don't know if it's a mistake, if it's a, an unintended blooper, and the reason I bring this up is because when I watch the supplemental material afterwards, the behind the scenes, there's a couple of shots of the actors at a bar or restaurant type of location where they're being patted down, that their faces looks like they're being dried. They're trying to get the sweat off their face. But there's a number of shots where not only Georgie Scott's character sweats a lot, a lot of sweating, and it's kind of like, it might be unintended because like one shot, he's got sweat kind of coming off his face, and then the next shot, he might not have it. So it, it might be unintended, bloopery kind of stuff. And then Ed Flanders, uh, the other actor who plays Father Dyer, same thing. At this bar, all of a sudden, some of the shots, he's covered in sweat. And it's like, what's going on? Is this, is, is he supposed to look nervous because of the topic they're talking about? Or was he just having a bad moment? So it's kind of weird sometimes when you see those things, which, again, could be some kind of a, a bloopery, you know, error that was trying to be covered up. Now, in this sequence where they're at a restaurant uh, having a drink and having having a meal after they go to the movies in the beginning of the story, while they're talking about the anniversary of Karis's death, we see on the wall a picture of Karis, played by Dorif, surrounded by what could be the members of a rowing team. Uh, so it's kind of like a, a reminder of what the past used to be, because they're talking about him, they're kind of remembering him. And that's an important connection, because... One of the things we find out in the movie is that the boy that was killed first, part of the gruesome manner where he was killed, he was crucified and rowing oars. So there's definitely a connection, you know, indirectly to Karis with that murder. What's also very important is that in this original cut of the film, it is established early on that Brad Dourif is Father Karis. Aside from when we meet him later in the cell, they're kind of telling us early on or getting us accustomed to the fact that it's a different actor now playing that role. Just like we learned that George C. Scott is playing the, the Kinderman role. So that is a little jarring, if you will. If you think about it, you're like, wait a minute. Okay, you're being told the ground rules, which is interesting. A couple of added scenes uh, in the hospital having to do with Dyer uh, going in for some kind of a procedure or some episode, something happened to him that he needed to be brought in. And they kind of chat about with a nurse about how uh, they already took blood from him. And he's like, yeah, you don't have to poke me again and get more blood out of me. That There's a little banter having to do with taking blood out of him that was removed for the later cut, specifically because it's, it's, it's foreshadowing the manner in which he dies later on, which is another horrific manner of how the, this, this guy is killing off people. There's a scene which I think it's in both cuts that is a little odd, and that is when they're trying to figure out how the killer killed the priest in the confessional booth, they bring or they make or they have, I don't, I don't know exactly how, a replica of the wall that separates the two people in the booth in the police squad room. And they're kind of demonstrating to each other, well, he had to reach through here, he had to touch this, he had to put fingerprints on that, you know, that all that kind of stuff. And it just seemed a little odd to me, like, really, would they have such a replicated replica <laughs> of a confessional made out of scratch or, or you know, or, or brought in? Because it looked like it wasn't an original one. It, it didn't look like they, they tore it off the wall or something. It looks like they, they, they either made it from scratch or somebody had a spare one. But it just seemed a little odd when I watched it. And this is either both of the cuts. There's a sequence where 
Kinderman is having a dream. And again, this could be considered the second dream sequence of the film. This is the more explicit one where you see a lot more strange things and images going on. And there's a shot which was driving me absolutely insane when I was watching the supplemental material. There's a shot of Brad Dourif in full priest outfit, a snapshot. And he's wearing a priest outfit, you know, the, the black outfit with the, with the collar. And he's got a big gash on the side of his head with some blood, I think, trickling out. And I couldn't remember where this came from. And then in one of the supplemental documentaries, they talk about how they created the shot of the priest in the glass a bell, uh, which is, again, it's part of that dream sequence where for a very quick second or two, you see a priest trapped inside a glass container or a glass bell. And the priest is played by Brad Dourif. So it's an interesting additional role, you could say, if you will, because this is the only second time that we see Brad Dorff wearing the priest outfit, other than that photo we were just talking about a few minutes ago. And again, this is a this is a bizarre dream, and in the dream, he is Father Karras, and I guess it's a way where information is being told supernaturally, I guess if you if you could say, to Kinderman, where again when you watch the film the first time, the Exorcist Three theatrical cut, you're not even going to know who that priest is. You're just not going to know because the shot is so quick and you have no background information. Uh, but it is. It, it, it's supposed to be additional information for you if you you know were watching the original cut to let you know that's Father Karst. And it's Father Karst inside a glass bell, which means when you think about it, it means he is trapped inside something that he can't control. You know, he's a trapped individual and that's what happens to him. He's trapped in this moment now, in this film, in this story. His body is being controlled by the Gemini killer. Now, even though in the story we do find out that it took the Gemini killer 15 years to be able to gather enough strength and repair enough of Karis's body to be able to now perform these murders effectively. But all this time, he it was, it was again, it's all, it's all a ruse by his master, because he refers to him as the master, you know, to kind of insult and demean the people, the forces that defeated him by corrupting the person that was most heroic Father Karras, and tying him to these Gemini killings. Now, as I mentioned before, Dr. Temple, who's played by Scott Wilson, who is Herschel, if you guys remember in Walking Dead, he makes it to the film. The other doctor doesn't make it to the film. So the weirder of the, well, the weirder, the, the creepier, uh, yeah, I guess you could say the creepier of the two doctors is Scott Wilson's character, Dr. Temple. In the film, in, in either cut, there's a really, really good sequence, funny sequence, where he's practicing what he's going to say to Kinderman. And as he's practicing, Kinderman walks into his office and he hides his notes because he's kind of, he's like running lines, like an actor would be running lines. And Kinderman starts asking him questions and then he's he's responding to these questions and every now and then he looks at his notes like on, his, on the edge of his desk and on his drawer and he's reading exactly what he wrote before, which is, it's, again, it's a really funny sequence, which reflects, again, there's this underlying humor in this script also. There's a lot of very funny stuff because, 
Blatty apparently was also, you know, before he went and did these kind of stories, these supernatural exorcist kind of stories, he was apparently a comedy writer. He did a lot of comedic writing. So you can kind of see that kind of proliferating through it. But what's really interesting is the stuff on the wall of this doctor's office, some really bizarre crazy images that and there's even a sign that says the, the something like the only way you can tell the patient from the doctor or something like the the only the only person crazier than a doctor is the patient something like that and and, and again some of the images on the wall are images we saw earlier in the dream so it's it's really interesting how that dream that kinderman had is setting up a lot of the things that are going to happen later in the movie. Again, remember how I said that the book is not as supernatural as the movie, the theatrical cut, especially with The Exorcism. There's a lot of subtle creepiness in the book. And there's a lot of subtle creepiness in the first cut and even the the later cut. But there are certain images that... No matter how you slice it, something weird is going on, and it might not necessarily be a dream, because it's just bizarre. There's a shot where Kinderman is visiting Father Riley, and they're talking about what's going on, and the, you know the, the, the power goes out, the clock stops turning, sounds are heard outside, and he goes to see what's going on. It's a, it's a setup, jump scare kind of moment. And all of a sudden, there was a statue of, uh, I don't know, a, a bishop or a priest or something holding, I don't know, something. A cross, maybe, let's say. And then you get a quick shot of the same statue now, but it's it's what looks like this demonic-looking thing holding a knife. And the face, which you find out later through the uh, supplemental material, they, they kept referring it to as the Joker face because that's what they ended up doing. They ended up grabbing a, a Joker mask, I think, or a sculpture of the Joker and using it as a prop on top of this statue to give it a, a demonic look. And it's like, boom, there it is. It's exactly what that was. And and then you're led to thinking, well, wait a minute, this isn't a dream sequence. What is this? It's a touch of supernatural, you know what I mean? Without having to explain it, without having to follow up on it. So that's, that's what you're dealing with in, in scenes like that. The original cut also has a sequence that was in the book, I believe. If I remember right, I could be wrong. But it has a sequence where as soon as Kinderman realizes that there's a guy that looks just like Karis in this hospital, he goes and has the body exhumed for where Karis was buried. And through the process, he learns that off the bat, he finds out that the body is not the body. He does, doesn't look like Karis. He looks like someone else. And as he investigates with Father Riley, they kind of come to the conclusion that the guy that was there to take care of the body, to prep the body for burial, is the one that is in the grave instead. They figured it out. They perform a, a secondary autopsy, or at this rate, it's a first autopsy. The guy died, and he was buried instead of Karis. I think they might have changed clothes or something. I'm not sure. The most famous shot of this film, whether it's the original or the um, theatrical cut, is the shot of that long, long, long wide shot of the hallway with the nurse checking out the room and then she comes out of the room and then there's a figure that comes after her with that long scissor-like device. I've seen that sequence so many times. It is so scary. The way that it is set up, it's, it just builds and builds and builds to a complete scare scene. For the first time after watching the original cut, I realized that that person or that being with the scissors with the chopping thing, 
is coming out of room 411, which is the room where Dyer is murdered. I thought that person was coming out of the hallway. But then when she goes to look at that room, he actually walks in the room and walks out. That's when you get that quick shot of the guy running. And I'm like, wow, I've never noticed that before. And it's, it's again, it's one of these like top 10 scary, scary scenes in horror films. This is probably one of those top 10. Speaking of callbacks, if you will, there's a scene where Durif mentions something about it being child's play, like how simple it is. It's just child's play. That's a callback, I think, to one of his other famous roles. He was the voice of the killer in child's play. He's the voice of Chucky. (laughs) And even later on in the film, they go to a sequence where you think this kid is about to get killed. And the kid is a little redhead, cute kid that looks a lot like the Chucky, the Chucky doll, which is, again, I have a, they must have done that on purpose just to mess with, with the audience. But that's, uh, that's really interesting. The original cut ends very differently. Like I mentioned before, you have no exorcism. You have not, you don't have that huge climactic special effects battle that you had, you know, uh, on the theatrical cut. It is more uh, like the book in a way. The climax of this film, of this cut, is really the suspenseful scene of the patient dressed as a nurse heading over to Kinderman's house to possibly kill his family. But that never happens in the film. The film, like I said, in this cut, everything gets stopped. He shows up, goes back. But what happens here is in this cut, he gets there in time, just like he did on the theatrical cut, and he stops her from chopping. I think the grandmother is the one that pulls the daughter at the last second before the chop happens, and then they fight and fight and fight, and then she has this weird, like, something's happening kind of moment where I guess the body is leaving her, so he no longer has control of her, so she's kind of settling back down again. But in this original cut, he gets back to the hospital, and Durif, obviously, as the Gemini killer, is like, ah, oh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll have another chance to, to, to do this again. And he's basically telling him, we're going to kill your family, you know, next time. We're going we're gonna to try it again. And Kinderman pulls out his gun and shoots him. Shoots him twice. Boom. Falls down. And then shoots them a third time, I think, to his head. You don't see it. You hear it. And then it cuts to a sunset, I think. Similar to the opening shot of the the rowing team, you know, the rowing, again, we're back to that rowing team imagery, why the connections are all there, all the connections are there. And it's a very abrupt ending. And I could kind of see how they might have felt like, yeah, this is a, something's not right with this cut. Something needs to be added. Something needs to be done. With that said, I don't care what cut we're looking at. The Dorif is fantastic. In the interview that we hear from Durif, which he reminisces about the whole making of the film and all the craziness about he's doing the role, he's not doing the role, he's brought back to do the role again, you know, all that kind of craziness. He talks about how he prefers the original cut because he prefers the, well, he prefers his original performance. He says that he he gave something better in that original performance. And I guess it's because of his acting style. He had these like 20 minute long monologues. I mean, they were like huge, huge monologues to perform that obviously Miller couldn't do because of his his issues, his medical problems. But it's really, really interesting how I can kind of admire all the cuts. You know, there's different things I like better about some and others. I remember when I first watched the... uh, 
the first uh, theatrical cut and even the, the new one there's a shot there's this, this beginning shot of helicopters going by and they're in this formation going over the river and stuff and you're like what does this have to do with anything in this movie what do helicopters they almost look like military helicopters they're not but like and then i kind of start to when i thought about it more and then i i started oh wait a minute there's helicopters in the police crime scene because it does open on the crime scene of the kid who was killed so that kind of ties it in and in the book it's a little more difficult but in the movie if you really have to figure out who kills who it basically goes this way as far as i can tell the patient who is the one with the radio thing, she's talking about an imaginary radio she's listening to, she's the one that kills Dyer. The lady that is a patient who, let me think, who you do get a very quick shot in the beginning of the nurse taking her to the church in the beginning. She's wearing all black. Who then you see a reaction from someone else screaming after, I guess, they find the body of the priest whose head was cut off at the uh, confessional booth. She is another patient because she is the only way you can tell that she was the killer because she was carrying the same bag, that big bag where that big scissor thing was. So you do see the bag. So there's your second one. Obviously, later in the film, the other patient pretending to be a nurse, she goes out and goes to Kinderman's house. So you know exactly that she was supposed to be the next killer. Hey, man, it's tough. It's You got to figure these things out. It's so tough. The rest of the murders in the movie are not as clear-cut, no pun intended, as in terms of who exactly did it. The beginning of the movie with Thomas Kintry, the, the little boy, that's a tough one because we don't have any direct connections. But you could theorize that the patient that is being brought to the confessional, she does seem to be confessing to allegedly 17 other murders. So you could say, well, maybe it was her. But you also don't know when would that have happened, you know, if she's being more or less supervised by the other nurse that is taking her to the church, you know, is the other nurse under control too? I, I don't think so, because it seems to be only happening one person at a time. Could it be another patient? It could be, because these patients seem to be able to find their way out of the <laughs> the uh, the the hospital one way or the other, so that's a possibility too. It's unknown. Now later in the story, the first nurse gets killed, which is the one with that that really scary scene with the in the hallway. We don't know who did that. It seemed like a really tall individual, so it's hard to believe it might be one of the patients, especially the older lady patients we've met so far, because the only confirmation we have so far is that it's women that are affected by this at least directly told that you know it could be any of them it could be the the one that i'm theorizing from the church it could be the one that uh, listens to the imaginary radio it could be other people that we haven't met yet within the hospital then there's a secondary nurse that gets killed that they kind of find her kind of half naked on the floor and it's like well, who did this? You know, that's the same room. That's that's the same room right after Kinderman talked to the uh, the radio lady. <laughs> so it could have been the radio lady. You never know. And then you have Dr. Temple, who apparently commits suicide, that the Gemini killer takes credit for. And he, I think there something is referenced to the fact that he kind of told them to do it or something like that. So he was under some kind of control. So that kind of also brings back the possibility and... It's not unreasonable that he can control both men and women. No kidding. I mean, he's got the Gemini killer. 
and caress. So, you know, you're right there. So, yeah, half of these murders are questionable as to exactly who committed them. The other thing that's in, interesting in the movie is, uh, you know, with all of these little very subtle supernatural things happening, the second you have the radio lady crawling on the ceiling that I didn't mention before, you know, the, the big shocker is the, the hallway shot. That's the classic horror shocker scene. Perfect setup, perfect delivery. But the creepy lady crawling on the ceiling, that is something that you could just cannot wrap your head around because it is so supernaturally bizarre. I mean, granted, at the end with the exorcism and the, you know, throwing the priest in the air and against the wall and Kinderman and all that, you know, I know it goes completely nuts at the end. But that wasn't really the original intent. Remember, the exorcism scene was not part of Blatty's idea. That was forced on him by the studio. But the crawling lady, that was part of his, I believe. So that is probably the most or one of the most supernatural things that happened in the movie. So, yeah, that's an interesting one to keep in mind. One more little tidbit that I found is that when Father Dyer, in the beginning of the film, is at his church wrapping up a service and he's talking to this, uh, I guess it's the choir boy, an, an older choir boy. That guy looked familiar. And I'm like, that actor looks very familiar, very young at the time, but very familiar. Kevin Corrigan, who's a comedic actor. he I think he was in Grounded for Life, that series. He, he's a specific kind of actor, but again, very young here, uh, I guess a cameo, if you can call it a cameo, not even a cameo, it's a, it's a walk-on role, kind of very small role, but very noticeable. Once again, why spend so much time on this particular film out of all of the films that I've been looking at? I don't know. It's one of those rabbit holes that I fell into. Again, while I'm watching this, I'm trying to figure out and all the supplemental material and the books and the different cuts of the movie, I'm trying to figure out exactly the the, the sequence of events that led Durif into playing the character and not playing the character and playing the character. As I mentioned before, I like all the cuts. Uh, there is some really good things about those original shots of Durif, especially when he gets to play all the lines, all the scenes of that character. But I also can acknowledge that it's very jarring on the audience to accept that he is playing Father Karras, you know, w w without being eased into it. And I granted, we did have that photo in the restaurant. Uh, we did get that quick shot of the priest and the bell, but nobody would recognize him or figure out who he is. And they do tease us a little bit at a time. They reveal him in different shots that we don't get in the theatrical cut. But we have to be told in this first cut that he is Father Karras, or at least to Kinderman, he looks exactly like Father Karras. And that's something that the audience has to accept. And yeah, that's a little tough, I think, to accept from a storytelling He's like, this is so-and-so. But you're looking at him going, no, it's not. It's not so-and-so. So-and-so looks different. That suspension of belief in the middle of a movie is a little difficult to take. And, and that's why I think it, 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 the, the theatrical cuts also works to a certain extent by having you go back and forth between Karis, Jason Miller's Karis. So... It was very smart, I think, for Blatty to minimize the Karis scenes, the Miller scenes, as much as possible. 
not only because the actor couldn't do them, but because Dorif did such a fantastic job that you want to give him 90% of the of the screen time. He is just, he's on fire, man. I'm telling you, he should have been nominated for an Oscar. And the other thing you find out through some of these documentaries is that because of Miller's deteriorating condition, medical problem condition, he was not there for a lot of the other shots that were needed. And they used another actor wearing a mask, a prosthetic mask that looked like Miller's face to shoot some of those scenes because he just was not there. He could not do it. He was so, so much in rough shape that he could not, you know, complete or do those extra scenes. Scenes that, because of the rewriting of the script now, were needed to be his face. Really, really. The making of this movie is is really, it's a movie on its own. Uh, we've done shows in the past about movies that the making of are, are so incredibly entertaining and <laughs> daunting that it's just incredible that... After it's all said and done, granted, this movie wasn't a blockbuster. It wasn't wasn't really a hit. It was a bit of a bomb, if you think about it. Not as big a bomb as the second one. But this, little by little, this movie became a cult favorite. And it did for me. I really didn't pay any attention to it originally when it came out. It was later through video or cable, I think it was, that I finally got around to watching it. And was really blown away. Again, the performances uh, by... Uh, even George C. Scott. I mean, George C. Scott is a... He's a he's a tough guy, and and uh, but um, Scott and especially Durf they steal Durf steals this movie, plain and simple. So again, my recommendation is get this movie, watch it, appreciate it, and learn the history. I mean, it's incredible when you really think about. It. And again, I always say it, you know, that old saying about you don't want to know how the sausage is made because my God, was was this sausage very roughly made <laughs> when you got your final product, but. Definitely pick yourself up a copy of this director's cut, uh, Shout Factory edition of Exorcist 3, Legion. It's funny because the Blu-ray has a dual cover. You can you can use the inside cover or the outside cover. It has two different uh, bits of art in it. And at one point uh, from the documentary, uh, you learn that the movie was initially called Exorcist 1990, I think because Blatty wanted it to call Legion, but they wouldn't go for Legion. They wanted to tie it into a, a blockbuster, obviously. And then later it became Exorcist 3 against uh, uh, Blatty's wishes, along with many other things that he was forced to do to not, I guess, to not get thrown out of the, the making of this film. But yeah, this one is, uh, is a keeper. Get the DVD, the Blu-ray, uh, the special edition, uh, because it contains both the theatrical and the special edition, and get the books. Get the Exorcist original book, and get the Legion book, both from William Peter Blatty. All right, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We uh, dipped back into a, an old topic that we covered a while back. Really, really interesting. Uh, I was a big fan of the original book, you know, read it, recently actually you've never even touched that book just like the movie the exorcist you know i, I wasn't a an early on <laughs> adopter of the exorcist it took me a while to get to that movie and when i did it is a fantastic horror film um, then when i read the book oh my god the book was even better there was so much more material in it and i had watched the uh third film i completely bypassed the second one and 
that film, I remember, it gave me this this kind of John Carpenter-ish feel to it. And later on, recently actually, I was able to get the book, and yeah, the book is really, really good, and it kind of brings me back to that original book, and it adds a whole other level, it explores other characters, it focuses on some smaller characters that are really, really well fleshed out, and then when you start hearing the whole story of how this movie ended up the way it did, it added another entire level of, of really interesting information about filmmaking and you know, the things that a director will go through to get a movie made and how much changes, uh, you know, are needed or are demanded, you know, from the uh, studio and that sort of thing. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. On behalf of everybody here, thanks for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. The main thing is the torment of your friend, Father Karras, as he watches while I rip and cut and mutilate the innocent, his friends, and again, and again, and on and on. He is inside with us. He will never get away. His pain won't end. Oh, gracious me. Was I raving? Please forgive me. I'm mad. Let's see. Where was I? If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. <laughs>